0: There we go. All right. Um, so let me do this, um, and uh, I guess as usual, let me open us up with prayer, and then we'll jump in. Dear Father, there is um, a lot here, and and truthfully, I think both Morgan and I can say we don't feel adequate to be able to teach it all properly, and uh, and... By the end, I know there will still be mystery and some things unsolved, um, but but uh, our heart is this that we would that we would grasp Jesus' heart in this text and that we would see what He wants from us more than just the the cool things we can try and find in in the in the secret codes or whatever of this text that we could we could get what Jesus wants from us and that you would give us hearts ready to obey. Um, and so I ask that in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so Mark 13, you can go ahead and go there if you want. It is 37 verses long, and so we will get to it. What this, this section of Scripture is called is the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, and it, is, it, is, uh, it takes place in three different Gospels. Take a guess at which ones. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you ever hear it's in three, that's a fairly safe guess. With the synoptic gospels, meaning to see the same, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a lot of similar events. And so all three of them, Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. Most people, when they're studying the Olivet Discourse, go to Matthew 24. It's kind of the most famous of them. Um, But uh, all three of them record... Um, the same event and teaching with a little bit of kind of extra details added in each one of them. It is one of the most, I think you could say, mysterious and one of the most debated and one of the most semi-scary passages in the New Testament. And and a lot of people aren't fully sure what to do with it and there are a lot of people who are really sure what to do with it. They're just really wrong when they're sure about what to do with it. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of... Uh, a brief, actually, let me, let me just read to you a few statements from it. Um, these are some of the things that Jesus prophesies and speaks about in Mark 13. He says in verse 8, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And in verse 14, 14, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In verse 19, he says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. In verse 22, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And in verses 24 and 25, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be fallen from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Bum, bum, bum. Feels like is how you're supposed to kind of end all those statements. Um, this really kind of weighty, somewhat dramatic, scary statements that Jesus is making about sometime in the future. And this is the big debate. When in the future is Jesus talking about? So there are two major ends of the spectrum um, in describing this or in trying to interpret Jesus' message here. Um, the first and, and, and probably the most common, I would say, the one that definitely gets um, talked about a lot, is, is that Jesus is talking about the end times. And by end times, I mean His second coming. Even that phrase, kind of end times, can get a little confusing because the New Testament talks about the last days a fair amount, but it usually means something than we mean when we say it. The last days to the New Testament are all the days that come after Jesus. That's the last days. Um, but, but when I say that it's talking about the end times, what I mean is one, made the, one of the major interpretations is that Jesus is talking about his second coming the final judgment when He comes um, to um, this world and, and He brings judgment on it and, and, and comes and redeems His people. And, and so that everything that we read in here is referring to that. And, and, and the idea is that if we can kind of crack the code, so to speak, and if we can look through and see the different signs that He's presenting in here, then we'll be able to look around us and be able to figure out perhaps when that might be coming, it will make us more able to perceive when Jesus' um, second coming is soon approaching, so we can kind of be ready for those things. Um, The second approach to this says, yes, this is future, but future for Jesus and his followers, not for us. That is that what Jesus is referring to is about 40 years in the future for him. That would be the year A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, we know that Jesus prophesies about this in other places. Let me let me read to you kind of one of the famous ones. Um, this is Jesus. Um, I, I we talked about when Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Um, when people are waving palm branches and hailing him as king and as the Messiah and blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh when they're all saying these things and sing to him and, and we remember we studied Matthew's account of it and Mark's account of it and Luke's account of it and Luke gives us something that the others don't give us and that is what Jesus' demeanor is as he's going in you would think that it would be a very happy demeanor and one in which he is um, smiling and excited the whole time um, Not all the way in. At least this is part of it in Luke um, 19, starting in verse 41. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it Um, the time of your visitation being, you didn't know when God came and visited you. You didn't know when His Son, when the Messiah came here. You didn't recognize it, and because of that, Jesus says judgment will come on you. And there are a number of people who think that Matthew or that Mark 13 is all about the judgment of Jerusalem, every last bit of it. And there's nothing in there that has anything to do with the future. All of it got fulfilled in A.D. 70, with the destruction. We'll, we'll get into the story of that and, and how that actually took place in A.D. 70 um, a little bit later. Um, but the question that is constantly debated is which one is it? And where do we land and how do we know? Um, I want to propose to you tonight, Morgan and I, want to propose to you that it might be, the truth might be somewhere in between those two things. Um, that maybe there's, um, maybe the, 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 the answer as to is it about the final judgment or about the destruction of Jerusalem, maybe the answer is yes, Um, that both of these things get touched on. Um, But the important thing is we want to let the text decide what the text is talking about and not us decide what the text is talking about. That's interpretation 101 right there. Um, if you want to know what the text says, let's find out what the text says, not what we think or what we want it to say or, or what our Sunday school teacher or preacher or our um, Christian book that we read says. Let's find out specifically what the Bible says about it. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to read through and try and, and get a grasp on what Jesus is referring to in this text here. Um, I will actually, Morgan, you won't be our reader. Um, sure. from there for a second. Okay, so I'm going to have you read for us a little bit. Read verses 1 through 2 real quick. Do you want me to read from your Bible? From yeah, ID. Yeah, go ahead and read from ESV for us. 1 and 2? Yes.
1: And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down.
0: Alright, I'm going to switch you and you can have that there. That's perfect. Beautiful. Um, so here's what happens. As they're coming out of the temple, remember Jesus has been spending a lot of time in the temple. This is his last week here and there's been a lot of engagement. We'll get into this. As they're walking out, the, the disciples comment on the, the beauty of these stones. The beauty of this temple. And the temple mount is what it was called, which is the giant platform that, that it was all settled on. Now, Mark has been leading us into this. In in Mark 11 and in Mark 12, leading up to 13, Jesus has been, in various ways, sometimes a little bit more clear, sometimes a little bit more implicit, pronouncing judgment on the temple and on the religious leadership of the Jews. Do you remember? He makes his way into Jerusalem one morning, and he goes up to that fig tree, remember? And it doesn't have any fruit on it, and so... Apparently, hangry Jesus curses the fig tree and says, "May no one ever eat from you again." And then they go into Jerusalem. What does he do when he gets in Jerusalem? Cleanses the temple. He starts throwing out money changers and starts um, driving out the animals and all these things out of the court of the Gentiles. Um, because the core of the Gentiles would have been able to pray there. And, and, and so he talks about how this is a, my house is supposed to be a house for all nations out of Isaiah. But then he also makes this weird little line from Jeremiah 7. But you have made it what? A den of robbers, a den of thieves. And we talked about this. The den is not where robbers go to rob. The den is where they go to hide out. And what Jesus is saying, he's actually quoting Jeremiah 7, which is all about The Israelites thinking they can live however they want to live and they're safe as long as they got the temple. As long as I show up and put my time in there, as long as the God of Israel is still living there, as long as the temple is still standing in Jerusalem, we're good, we're safe. And and Jeremiah says, and then Jesus says, how foolish of you um, to try and turn this into a den of robbers and think you'll be safe in that. So he cleanses the temple. They walk back out and the disciples notice what? That the fig tree is dead. And and what we talked about is how Mark actually uses this interpretive kind of Um, section where these two passages about the fig tree sit on either side of the temple as a way of displaying what happens to the fig tree is what's going to happen to the temple. When Jesus pronounces judgment on the fig tree, it comes. And so guess what happens when he pronounces judgment on the temple. And then he spends all of chapter 12 debating and going back and forth with the religious leaders and they keep trying to question him and attack him and he keeps kind of refuting them. And so it is this big kind of standoff between the leadership and the religious establishment and the temple of Israel and Jesus himself. Now we get to an explicit, uh, uh, kind of an explicit statement about it. They're walking out and these disciples, most of whom are from Galilee, backwoods area of Israel up north, and they haven't seen a whole lot of cool things, but the temple, you don't even have to be backwoods. It would have been amazing, amazing even for us to see on these huge, gigantic stones that everything was built on and and set on top of this huge platform. It was built originally by what king? Solomon Solomon in 950 B.C. And then it got destroyed by, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. because Israel would not repent. And the prophets came and pronounced, you guessed it, judgment on the people of Israel and the temple. And when they pronounce judgment, soon after it came, 586 BC, it gets destroyed. In 349 BC, it gets a second temple gets finished again. So they've got their second temple, and we actually we actually refer to this period as Second Temple Judaism. The temple, or the point from there all the way to 70 AD, um, Jesus lived during Second Temple Judaism because the Second Temple is in existence. And so, from 349 all the way till 18 BC, when Herod the Great is the ruler, is the king of Israel. And Herod's not a particularly religious guy, um, but he does want to kind of leave a name for himself, and he makes a name as a, as a great builder of things. In fact, he built a number of temples, even pagan temples. But he decides, I want to build, I want to, I want to do some real justice to this temple in Jerusalem, what it ought to be. And so he rebuilds it and makes it just immaculate just beautiful and, and huge and, and kind of makes this whole top of the mount Mount Moriah where it sits, Mount Zion, some call it where it sits. He kind of flattens and makes this whole kind of courtyard or, or this whole uh, platform area, that platform where the temple sat on and there were stairs that went up to the top of it so you could get on top of it and see out over everything. That platform was um, 472,000 square feet. Um, Roughly, go over to Boone Pickens Stadium. Look down on the football field. Okay, and it is that times what is it? Ten, I think. Yeah, ten. Okay, ten football fields is the size of the Temple Mount that they basically just carved out on top of this mountain. Um, and then they built walls 30 feet deep into the side of the ground, running all the way up to the top, with all these beautiful columns and colonnades. And then this. Uh, ornate temple, beautiful temple sitting on the top. It faced out towards the sun, I think in the east, yeah. And so when the sun rose in the morning and the front of the temple was covered like top to bottom in gold and it just glowed off the top of the mountain, they said, um, where the temple was. It was this incredible sight to behold and the disciples, perhaps not even paying attention to all Jesus' statements about how worthless it is, um, are going, Jesus, isn't this place awesome? And, uh, and Jesus says, yeah, don't get too attached to it. Um, basically says, there will come a time, he says, when not one stone will be left on the other. And then they walk outside to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside the city on the east side, and they turn, and they're facing, and they're looking right across at where the temple is. And that's what leads us to this discourse. Read verses 3 and 4, Morgan. And as
1: he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and
0: Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? That's it. So, um, so his disciples go to him and they said, so tell us, when will these things happen? Now remember, we're letting the text do the talking. So when they say these things, what are these things that they're talking about? Contextually, they're talking about the destruction. Jesus said, these stones will be ripped off of each other. And they said, when will that happen? When will these things happen? And so that's what they're asking. When will the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign that it's going to take place? Now Matthew says they kind of add kind of another question in here. They say when will these things happen, the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign of your coming? Like how will we know when the end is coming, when your coming is taking place? Um, Now more than likely they're not actually asking two questions in that. They're I mean, they kind of are, but that's two questions in one. Because to a Jewish person in the first century with an amazing, beautiful temple and a people who are positive and sure that, uh, that God is on their side, they cannot imagine a scenario in which the temple is completely destroyed that's not also the end of the world. So when the temple is destroyed, they know in their head that's got to be the end of the world. Um, that's, that's kind of the way they think through these things. And so, so when they say, tell us when this is going to be happening, um, they're, they're probably already thinking, and when are you coming back, you know, with that whole destruction of the temple thing? Here's how Jesus responds to them in verses five through eight.
1: And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of earth pains.
0: Was that eight? Yeah. That's good. Um... So Jesus begins, this is his first statement in there, see to it that no one leads you astray. The word is blepo, it literally is like see or watch or notice. That word is going to come up several times even if you don't see it in your English translation. In the Greek it's there, blepo, see, watch. Um, And this becomes kind of the primary theme of the text, watch out, be sure that... Whatever, in this case, be sure that no one leads you astray. Now, notice here, he's giving instructions to his disciples. He says you a whole lot. Be sure that no one leads you astray. Now, here's one of the major problems, I believe, with the, um, with the view that says that this is all future, that this is all about the second coming, is it makes no sense for Jesus to tell Peter how to interact with this if Peter's not going to be alive when it happens. For him to say, be sure that when these things happen, you're ready. Um, and Peter's like, okay, I'll be ready. And then Jesus is like, no, I'm not really talking about you. I, by you, I mean not you. I mean just you. So us? No, not you. Someone 2,000 years later. Okay? Um, that, that doesn't seem to make sense. So he's giving instructions to them, meaning he expects them to be able to interact with the things that he's saying right now, for them to be able to obey Him in the events that He's describing. He describes these things, there will be wars and rumors of wars, there will be um, nation against nation, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines and all of these things that will be taking place. Many have looked around at those things and I remember sitting in sermons as a kid in my little Christian school chapel service and, and guys talking about, have you noticed all the earthquakes have been happening recently? you notice that there's some wars taking place on the other side of the world, have you noticed that I mean, we're about to go to war against Iraq have you heard, and, and, and basically going back and saying, see it says, says when earthquakes come, the end is coming when wars come, the end is coming I heard there's a famine in Ethiopia when a famine comes, the end is coming And it, it becomes really easy to look around at all the things that we have going on around us, and try and line it up with Jesus and say, yes, this is what we're talking about, but likewise actually, those who believe that all this took place in the first century in 70 AD can do all of those same things because we have recorded all throughout there um, famines, Luke records that a major famine hits Jerusalem um, in the book of Acts um, around 50-ish 60-ish AD We have wars, plenty of them. Uh, The Jewish-Roman war that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. Uh, All kinds of things that pop up. There is disease. There are major earthquakes that take place. The Roman historian Tacitus writes about how nuts this century was when it came to things like wars and famines and earthquakes. And, And so those people who believe that this is all past look around and go, Aha! See? It's, 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 it's that, it's, it's the first century. And so it can be really easy to look for all those things. But ironically, actually, if you pay attention, the point of Jesus' statement is that you shouldn't get caught up in all that. That you spend, shouldn't spend your time looking at earthquakes and going, aha. Because it doesn't indicate anything. Um, this is what he says in verse 7. Um, where is it there? And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, when you hear about a great war coming, that doesn't mean the end is coming. That's not the end. Um, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Um, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Um, so he says, "Listen, this is this is Jesus' whole point. Like earthquakes, surprise, surprise, are going to happen." And I know this is going to blow you away, but there are going to be some countries that go to war together. And when those things happen, don't freak out. And don't spend all your time going, oh, this must be it, this must be it, maybe this one is it. He says, no, 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 that stuff is bound to happen. He says that's the beginnings of birth pains. And, and, and this idea of birth pains is used in the Bible and the Old Testament a lot to talk about a very distressful thing that ends up leading to a good and joyful thing, just like birth. Something that can be painful, but leads to joy in the end. And what Jesus says is this is just the very beginning. This must take place. This is the way history is going to work in this fallen and broken world. That there's going to be sin, and there's going to be natural disasters, and there's going to be wars. Don't get caught up looking in that. Looking at all that stuff and trying to figure that all out. That's not, that's not what you're here for. Um, uh, let's see. Go read verses 9-13. through 13.
1: And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end
0: will be saved. All right. So now uh, Jesus has been talking about kind of the general struggles of the world in the previous section, wars and famines and disasters, and now he actually narrows it into the specific difficulties that his disciples will face that they're going to be going through. And Morgan pointed it out. Our word popped up again, even if it's not in your translation, where it says, be on your guard. That, that word is literally blepo, watch. It's probably better translated, watch yourselves. Pay, pay attention here. Watch yourselves and be careful um, about these things. So that word is there again. And again, he does keep saying you, as in Peter, James, John. I'm talking about you and how you need to deal with these things. Um, says this that Christians will face lots of persecution. They will face it from the people around them. They will face it from governments. He says you will be dragged before the synagogues. You will be dragged before the councils. I think that word is literally Sanhedrins, which was the Jewish council at the time. You will be dragged before kings and governors. Um, I think the word is literally Pontiffs, which is what Pilate was. You'll be dragged before men like that, um, and life will be difficult. And then verse ten says this, and, and a lot of people have made this. Again, kind of a prophetic thing. Um, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. How many of you guys have heard kind of that truth that like Jesus will come back once we bring the gospel to every part of the world? Um, This is a really, really common. Really, really calm teaching, and people that I've actually truly respect and have learned from. Some of my teachers have said that that, and and based out of this, and and a statement that sounds a little bit more explicit in Matthew 24, um, gospel we preach to all nations, and then the end will come. Literally says, so we go. That's that's what we got to do. We want Jesus to come. We got to get out and share the gospel. Now, I do believe we got to get out and share the gospel. I do believe that we want to bring the gospel to all of the world. But I don't think what Jesus is saying is that. that when we do that, then the end will come. Um, in fact, kind of the large, large, one of the larger themes of this passage is like, we don't even know, let alone do we have control over when that's going to happen. So it seems weird for Jesus to say, unless you share the gospel with everybody, then you get to control when, when we come back, when I come back, right? Um, that, doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to fit right. What Jesus is saying, he notice where this falls. This falls right in the middle of a passage about large amounts of persecution. And what he says is, they're going to drag you before the courts. They're going to beat you. They're going to put you in the synagogues. They're going to stick you before kings and try and arrest you and stop you. Brother will turn against brother and and have people put to death. But he says this, but know this, no matter how much they press on you, the gospel is going to go to all the world. It's going to go to all the nations. But first, before everything is all finished, the gospel is coming to the world. And so it doesn't matter what they do to you. It doesn't matter how hard they press on you. The church will survive and the gospel will spread. And, and so that is what he, um, I believe, is speaking about here. He says that God will see to it. In fact, he's even going to give his spirit to help you. What does he say in verse, verse 11? And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, About what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Um, This actually isn't um, a statement about how you don't really have to learn much about the Bible because when you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit will just give you the words. Or for like lazy preachers and teachers like myself who, um, you know, I don't have to study because the Holy Spirit will just give me the words. Um, This is specifically in the context of persecution and when you're dragged before the courts. Um, when you're dragged before kings and governors, he'll give you the words to say, is what he tells them. Um, and then he says this towards the end of that, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now there's debate on two words there, end and saved. What does he mean by the end, and what does he mean by saved? Um, it could mean end as in the one who endures to the end of time until Jesus comes back, that person will be saved. It could mean that the one who endures until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, that person will be saved. Um, but that would mean like a physical saved, like that Jesus is going to save these people from the destruction of Jerusalem. Or Jesus is going to save these people from the great tribulation or whatever that might be at the end. Well, in the verse right before this, he says that brother's going to hand brother over to death which means faithful people will die in this process. So I don't think he's talking about the end, of a, the end of time or the end of something like that. He's talking about the one who perseveres and endures until the end of their life, until they die, until they're put to death or until they die. That person will be saved spiritually. Their soul will be saved. Um, so just so, you, just so we're kind of clear, verses 5 through 13, are they A.D. 70? Or are they the end of time? The answer is neither. The whole point of 5 through 13 is don't spend all your time trying to figure out these signs. Your job is to patiently endure what the world is going through and what the world throws at you. That's, that's the whole point of 5.13. Is No matter the general struggles in the world or the specific struggles that come after us as followers of Jesus, our job is not to look to heaven when things get hard and go, just come back and end this, just come back and end this. Although I think that's even okay to, to pray, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. But our job is not to just have our eyes looked up, but to be faithful where we are as we look up to God, to continue to serve and not spend all our time trying to guess at what point He might be coming back. Um, no, just just... Live and be faithful and patiently endure is the point of those. Okay, read verses 14 through 20. Morgan? Well, this
1: part's easy. From here on out, it gets
0: really easy. It's cake from here. This is where it gets really simple. Okay.
1: 14 through what? 20. Okay. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand
0: Is that through 20? Sorry. Through okay, I read through and 20. if the
1: Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened
0: the days. Alright. Here is the first concrete sign that Jesus gives them. So they ask for a sign, and he spends most of the time saying, don't worry about it. Okay? Um, but now he does actually give a sign. And he says it is this, when the abomination of desolation, or maybe better translated, the abomination that causes desolation, when you see him standing in the place um, that he should not be, then be ready. Oh, Scott. Scott. Are you joking? Um, <laughs> He has this little line in here. It says, "When you see, let me read real quick. um, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and in parentheses, let the reader understand. Um, We don't know exactly what that's talking about. But here's here's what I think. Here's, yeah, the reader does not understand. Um, Actually, here is more than likely what actually is going on. That's not Jesus talking. That's Mark talking." And so Mark is putting this in the text there. When they say, let the reader understand, in our culture, what we, what we think of as the reader is every individual who might be sitting there reading the Bible to themselves. But when Mark is writing this, there's actually, most people are illiterate, and most people don't have a copy of the scripture. So the reader is the one person standing up in front of everybody else reading this out loud. And what actually takes place in here is you have a neuter, or a neutral noun, talking about the abomination that causes desolation, followed by, in the Greek, the verbs have endings, the participles where have endings that can be masculine or feminine or neuter. And you want to match that verb up with the noun. So if it's a neuter-like noun, then you want to make sure that it's a neuter verb, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus puts a masculine verb in there. That's why the, that's why the NIV says, when you see the abomination... Uh, that causes desolation where he ought not to be let the reader understand what Mark is saying is that's not a mistake pay attention to the masculine there that there's actually like a person is what it sounds like he's actually saying let the reader understand that that that's there on purpose Um, um, where he ought not to be and so um, says then you know that the end is coming but when what ending is he talking about again the final ending or 70 AD here's our hint He says this, "Um, when you see that happening, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, or take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in that day, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. So he gives all these things like, when that happens, um, don't go get your cloak. Don't try and find anything, just... Head for the mountains, man, um, and, and let's just hope for the women that they're not pregnant during that time. Let's just hope that it's not winter, so that it's not so difficult to travel during that time. Um, now, here's what I would say. Winter, going and getting your cloak, making sure you get to the mountains, none of that matters if it's the end of the world, right? Run wherever you want. You're still going to get smoked, okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> is, is what's happening. you're, understand. Yeah, let the reader understand. So I don't, think, I don't think that Jesus is talking about the end time here because it doesn't matter if you go back and get your cloak or not when Jesus comes, right? It doesn't matter where you run to. It doesn't matter if you're pregnant or if it's winter or any of those things. I think he's got to be talking about the disaster that's coming on Jerusalem. And that's why he says, let those who are in Judea the region of Jerusalem, head to the mountains when this takes place. Um, so he's describing the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in A.D. seventy. He's calling for them to escape Jerusalem before this incredible, difficult tribulation is about to take place. Um, here he is. Let me just kind of give you a brief, um, not fully whatever, um, not not. I guess I'm not going to do justice to all this, but this is kind of a brief synopsis of the Jewish-Roman war. In A.D. 66, the Jews were always, even during Jesus' time, there was always a certain level of tension between them and the Romans. And they did not like the idea that this pagan army was overrunning them, God's people, and and keeping them from being free. So there was always tension. And there was this group of people um, called the Zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was one. Um, kind of came from the group of results. These people who wanted to overthrow Rome and they would do whatever they could to overthrow Rome and they would. Um And and they would go around and people who sympathized with the Roman armies, they would like go around and like stab them in the middle of crowds and stuff like that. And so there was always this tension. And and it had boiled up over things like taxes and some stuff like that to where they began attacking Roman citizens that were in Palestine. So Rome comes in and says, fine, you want to try and mess with Roman citizens? And they come in and I believe the number is 6,000 Jews they kill. Um, and, And so they make a big deal of this, which does not quell the riot. It actually makes it far worse. And the Jewish people go um, crazy over this. And so in AD 66, okay, roughly 30 to 35 years after Jesus, um, a Jewish revolt breaks out. And the Jewish rebels actually overran the Roman garrison that sat in Jerusalem where a bunch of the Roman soldiers were stationed. So they came and they took that. And they took it for their own. And all the Roman officials, including Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa, who he, um, I think... Agrippa Second is he in Acts? I think he's in Acts. Um, he, he's got to flee the city and all the Roman officials got to get out of the city because there's a revolt going on and the Jews are taking back their towns. They're taking back their lamb. And so in 67, um, Vespasian, Vespasian, who ends up becoming an emperor at one point, he's a Roman general. Him and his son, who is also in the military, named Titus, they get sent over to Israel to take care of the problem. And they go through Galilee, which is in the north, which is where Jesus did most of his ministry and where most of his disciples were from. They go into Galilee. Jerusalem is down south. It's fortified. It's locked up. So they're they're not going to mess with that yet. It's tough to get in there. They go through Galilee, though, and they just start wiping out every rebel stronghold in there. And not only do they do that, but they just start punishing the population and killing people there and doing everything they can um, to to put this down. Um, And so... As that happens, what that ends up doing is forcing thousands of refugees and thousands of rebel fighters who are getting driven out of Galilee down into Judea and into Jerusalem where it's safe, where there's walls. And so they all make their way down there. The problem is that during this time, while the Jews are fighting the Romans, the Jews are actually starting to fight with each other. So you have this group of people that are mostly backing the Sadducees that were kind of the temple power people, and a lot of them weren't even that didn't even mind Rome being in control in some... some instances because that kind of kept them in power and then you had this group of people the zealots who I talked about who hated them and a lot of those people from the north are zealot rebels and they come down and they go into Jerusalem and so now you have this mixing pot of people who don't like each other who are hating each other but also fighting the people on the outside that they don't like and things get kind of nasty in there. Civil war starts breaking out within the walls of Jerusalem. By 70 AD Titus comes and he besieges Jerusalem and there's a series of walls and they get the first wall knocked down in the first three weeks and the second wall knocked down in the first three weeks but the Jews fight back so hard that it takes them seven months to get through the third wall during that time though they lay siege to it and so no food gets in, nothing gets in or out, every Jew that is on the outside of the walls that could not get into Jerusalem they start grabbing and executing, Josephus the Jewish historian says that they crucified so many Jews outside the city that they ran out of wood to build crosses with. Um, Just lining the roads, that was a great way for Rome to show who was in charge. For anybody who walks down, they can see this is what happens when you mess with the mighty Rome. Um, And in the middle of the fighting, as the people on the inside in Jerusalem are fighting each other over things, the entire city's food supply ends up in a disastrous fire getting burned up. So now nobody in Jerusalem has any more food, and they're fighting... And no food can get in because the Romans are besieging it. And disease breaks out. And people are getting assassinated and murdered. And it was absolute chaos within the city. Um, Josephus actually tells the story of um, people are just fighting over food and looking for it everywhere. And doing everything they can to try and stay alive while fighting with each other and fighting with Rome. And these Roman guards smell food cooking. And so they run and they go find it. And they find a woman with Um, In a house and she's got the food there and they're going to go and just take it from her. And so they demand the food from her and she holds up half of her child who she's been cooking and eating. um, Because there's nothing left in the town. And people are driven to that point to cannibalism within the city of Jerusalem as they're working through these things. Um, That summer, seven months in, the Romans finally breach the wall, they break through and when they do that, they slaughter thousands of Jewish people in there. They ransack the city and they burn the temple down. It was an absolutely brutal period in Jewish history and one that is looked upon as one of the saddest moments in their history because that was, in essence, the end of the Jewish religion in some sense. It's not that it doesn't continue, but their entire religion was built around the temple and the fact that that was where their God was. And that was where they made sacrifices to. And that was everything to them. And, and, and as I said, to them, when the temple goes down, the world must be going down with it. And they must have felt like that. A number of them were exiled. Many more slaughtered and killed. And, and so this is this incredible tribulation that they go through. Um, very difficult in A.D. 70. So, question. What is the abomination of desolation? Jesus says when you see that happening, get out of Jerusalem. That's when you know things are about to get bleak. So, um, the good news is I don't have an answer for you. Um, the, I don't know, the, the sort of maybe good news is I'll take a guess for you. Um, there have been a lot of guesses about what this is. Some people think it is when Titus actually made his way, the Roman general got into Jerusalem and he walked into the Holy of Holies in a temple, which is where no one was supposed to go, let alone a Gentile, um, to go into the Holy of Holies. Um, there are some other things that think it was when one of the emperors in 40 AD tried to set up a statue of himself, Caligula, Caligula tried to get a statue of himself set up in the temple, but that never actually went down. Um, The thing with Titus, the Titus, which is what I always believed, the abomination of desolation is when Titus walked into the Holy of Holies, um, kind of um, defacing it or whatever, making it it impure. The problem with that is that's already after Jerusalem gets ransacked. And so that's not much of a warning for the people. Um, So there are all kinds of um, guesses about it. Here's where I lean. I lean towards this guy named John of Geshala. Remember, I said that there was this group of rebels up in the north, um, zealot rebels that came down. John of Geshala was the leader of those rebels, and when he got in, he led the fighting against the priests. Um, who were of the Sadducees' class, he led the fighting against them and brought in a group of Edomites who came and helped and even killed the high priest for them at that time. When that took place, John and his zealots took over the temple mount, took over the temple itself, even into the holy place, and they made it their own headquarters. Josephus says that when a bunch of people went there one day to worship at the temple, the zealots, John and his men, slaughtered a bunch of their own countrymen who were just going to the temple to worship. On that day um, And Josephus quotes this high priest who ended up getting killed, um, and I want to say, is how you pronounce his name. He was thrown out by the zealots and replaced by their own high priest. He said, "Certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations, or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of these blood shedding villains." Um, and so the high priest said it was, there's this crazy thing where all these villains and wicked people who were killing Jews were going and setting up courts in the temple man, that was such a and it's crazy the word he uses that was an abomination when that stuff took place and, and I think that that may be what Jesus is referring to because it's shortly after that that Jerusalem falls when Jerusalem is kind of collapsing in on itself because of John of Geshala and his people um, verses 21 through 23 Morgan
1: Not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs
0: and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Alright. This is where a number of people might see that idea of the Antichrist. that The Antichrists are coming trying to deceive people. Um, Won't get super into that except for to say this. The word Antichrist is only used in one book of the Bible. That is in 1 John. And that is not about False messiahs, that is about anyone who says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. That's an antichrist, is what is what John says, so I do not believe this is about Antichrist, and I kind of don't believe in the Antichrist, Um, but uh, Josephus says that during the first century, there were actually many who arose claiming to be kings and messiahs, and there were actually false prophets within Jerusalem as Rome was coming, and false prophets who stood in there and said, that's okay, I've got a word from the Lord that says we'll all be delivered from this. And Jesus said, or Josephus says because so many bought into the lies of the false prophets and the false messiahs, they ended up getting destroyed there in Jerusalem. Verse twenty-three, by the way, has that word "blepo," watch again in it um, when it says, "But be on guard." I've told you all these things beforehand. Now we come to a shift, though, because everything I've talked about has been A.D. seventy so far. Um, what, do think? what we think? Um, read. Definitely. Reads 24 through 27. Okay. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be
1: darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds
0: from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All right. So... This, honestly, sounds like more than just the destruction of Jerusalem. When it says that the Son of Man is going to come, that be Him. When He comes and He sends His angels out to gather the elect from the four corners, it sounds like more than just um, the destruction of the temple. And He says that this is going to happen after that tribulation. In those days, after that tribulation. Now, He doesn't specify how far after. And we'll see. One of the reasons why is because Jesus says He doesn't know. He just says, I know that it comes after the, J- the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, um, and He says, the stars will be dark, and the moon, the planets, everything is going to fall. I don't think that actually means actually like the moon's going to just drop out of the sky or anything like that. Um, the Bible often uses cosmic language to talk about large upheaval in the world. Actually, Peter, Peter uses cosmic language to describe the day of Pentecost. Um, he says this is what Joel described when he said that the moon was going to turn red. Um, and, and so he uses this cosmic language to talk about it. So I don't think he's talking about actual stars falling. I don't think. I don't know. But, um, so here's the question. Um, so wait, does that discount? I've been saying this whole time it's AD 70. And now I'm going, that's, this, this part is Jesus coming back. Um, I don't think, I, I, again, I think that actually these two things can both fit together. That Jesus has been talking about A.D. 70, but that now he's moving into a new part talking about himself. What appears to be taking place in this chapter is an A-B-A-B pattern where Jesus is actually going to alternate back and forth between these prophecies talking about these two different things. And so what we read um, just, just a second ago, which would have been from 1420, 20, actually I'll say 23, I think, um, and then 24 to 27. So this is 70. This is second coming, and he'll alternate in and out of these things. Morgan is going to get in. Yep, there you go. All right.
1: Okay, I'll go. I'll go as quick as I can. He had a, he had definitely had a heavier part of the text, and it, and the reason being, most of my text refers to his text, and so that's what we were, that's what we had to debate, and figure out the most. The reason he said 14 to 23, 20 or 23, and then 24 to 27 is somewhere between 20 and 23-ish is this this switch happens. We we think this switch happens between um, Jesus talking about 70 AD and Jesus talking about the second coming. And then basically goes and gives us kind of two illustrations about these two things again. And so we go back A and B. So if you look at uh, 28... Through thirty-one, we're gonna jump. This is gonna be twenty-eight through thirty-one. I don't want to pull this off of here. Okay, twenty-eight through thirty-one. So this is seventy A.D. We 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 believe. So it's gonna be talking about this, and then the rest of the chapter, we think, um, thirty-two through thirty-six, is referring to the second coming. So it's kind of commenting on this. And he talked about how there's two major differences between this coming and this coming. There are several differences, but there are two, there's, there's one major difference. Actually, I would say there's two major differences between, between those two things. Um, so the first, the first thing that we're going to do is I'm just going to read this. I have NIV, so just pardon my defiance to switch and change it's a problem I have. Okay, so 28 through 31 says this, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that he is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, so when it's talking about the fig tree as the first illustration, it says, when you see these things happening, know s- summer is near. And then it says, even so, when you see these things happening, so the key, just like at the beginning when we're saying, what are these things, what is these things referring to, that will help kind of give us an idea of what he's talking about. And this is why we believe it's 70 AD. Because we do think these things could be f- referring to the abomination that causes desolation. Um, and all of that kind of stuff we talked about. We also think the, the phrase these things could be talking about in the very beginning when it talks about the earthquakes and the famines um, the beginning of, as the beginning of birth pains and the wars, we think these things is referring to all of that stuff. Yes, it can be referring to all of that. Now commentators will kind of put those against each other and try to say if it's earthquakes and famines and rumors of wars and all that stuff, that has to be the end times in which Jesus is predicting this is all going to happen before these people put this generation passes away. And then he's wrong in his prediction. Well, clearly, Jesus is never wrong. OK. And so here's the deal. We think that actually, even whenever it's talking about the end is still to come. And I'm back to verses five through eight. Um, and it says, like, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, various places, and famines. If you look at the Old Testament prophecies, all of those terms all deal with this idea of this catastrophic events happening. Which, when he, whenever Drew explained the history of what he meant when he talked about the fall that happened in 70 A.D., you guys all looked like that was hard to hear kind of like that's a big deal that's kind of painful to listen to that is judgment those are very big those are very big deals now earthquakes famines all those things those could be literal those could be figurative to mean like this awful things going to happen and it does happen and you remember that everything he talked to you about about titus and them coming in and laying siege of and and tearing down the temple all those things happening that was the judgment jesus predicted right? They're praising Jesus when he's coming in, in Luke 19, and he's weeping over the city because this is what's going to happen. He knows this is what's going to happen to the temple. He, he already knew ahead of time there is going to be judgment because Jesus actually is a prophet, and he is God, and they rejected him. That's what they did. So this is going to be coming. So we believe that when it says these things, when you see all these things happening, okay, we say that you know that, and then in NIV, it says, it is near. And the NIV is wrong, I think. It's not, it is near. The original Greek is, he is near. And that's the other place where I think that um, where a lot of commentators like to say, well, if it's, he is near, then it's referring to the second coming. It's referring to Jesus returning. When actually, any sort of judgment can be referring to to Jesus, to his presence being near. So just know that it is, he is near, and it's still referring to judgment. I'm going to fly through this because we don't have a lot of time. So that's all I'm going to spend on here. We're going to go to part B because that's where a lot of the application, I think for us lies. So I'm going to read to you now, 32 through 36. It says, but about that day or hour. So I think we're going back now to the second coming. Okay. But about that day or hour, no one knows. And remember what drew said. That's really key to knowing that the audience here for this whole entire passage, the first audience is, are the disciples. And like Drew said, they cannot imagine the temple being torn down and overtaken and overthrown. They can't imagine how that could possibly be different than the end of the world. So for Jesus to even be making, like two th- making it sound like two things are going to happen would be really confusing to them. Does that make sense? So that's, I think, why he's doing this, why he's mentioning both things. Okay, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Here are, here's our words again. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. In the ESV, it says, stay awake. Stay awake. Um, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Or the ESV would say, stay awake. Stay awake. That's what he says. Okay. Now, whenever we go into this passage, he says, no one knows when that time is going to come. So it doesn't make sense for that to be talking about the fall of Jerusalem when he gave them very specific things that would happen leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. So no one knows what time what, what, when this will come. Okay. And that would be the second, the second coming that we're talking about. And the other thing I want to point out to you in this, well, a couple of things when he, he likens this to a man, a master going away and leaving his servants in charge of the house. And he gives them assigned tasks. And I think that's key for our application because anything that's upheld as a, as a faithful servant is someone who is being faithful to the work their master gave them whenever he returns. Not someone that is asleep, not someone that is standing at the door just trying to predict what's going to happen or when the master will return, but someone that is actually doing faithfully, obeying faithfully what the master has called him to do, the work that he has laid out for him. So one of the things we can take away from this is that we are supposed to do the work God's called us to do. And we're supposed to be doing that consistently and faithfully until his return or until our lives end. That's something that we are called to do. Um, I do think it's interesting in verses 35, in verse 35, it says this, therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. And then he gives us these four little time slots. And he says this as examples, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. And that's interesting. Some, some commentators say that Jesus could even be speaking in a different, like a parable within a prophecy type thing. They say that he could be alluding to the four events that lead up to his crucifixion. So they think that um whether in the evening would be the last supper or at midnight which could be the arrest of Jesus um him praying in Gethsemane or when the rooster crows would be Peter's denial or at dawn which would be the trial before Pilate. Now, I don't think that is what that's talking about, but I do think that it is interesting that that happens later. You know what I mean? And this is why I think it's, um, this is why I don't think that's what it's talking about. Those four time periods that it mentions there are also how the Roman people classified the four different time slots of the evening. So it makes sense that they're saying the most unaware time of your day is what I'm going to point out as like, be ready, stay awake, be alert. Okay. So I think that's what he's alluding to. But I do think it's interesting that if, as you're walking through the week of Jesus's crucifixion, I do think it's just interesting that in the garden, right? He's speaking to the disciples here. And in the garden, they sleep whenever he's praying. And Peter denies him in this time of testing. And then they flee at his crucifixion. You know, I, it is kind of interesting to like take note that in their time of testing, they actually didn't really stand up to what they thought they could handle. And I think part of that is, Drew was explaining to me that you guys have been kind of talking about the switch and mark about the Messiah and then the Messiah must suffer. And I don't think that his disciples are understanding and being able to grasp what he means by that. And therefore I don't think that they're understanding what it means that they are going to suffer and what he means by that. And this passage is huge. Whenever it comes to Jesus saying, here's what's going to happen. You're going to suffer. You're going to face persecution. People are going to try to deceive you and stay awake, stay vigilant, stay active. Don't fall asleep. Don't lay, don't lie down. Don't stand there and try to predict what's going to happen. Stay faithful to doing what I've called you to do. Trust that the Holy Spirit is going to fill up your lungs and come out of you preaching the gospel um, in those moments. And so I think he's trying to call them to this a little bit and, um, And they don't really understand what's going to happen and what's going to take place. Okay, They're not really there yet. And then at the end he says, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. He says, watch. So don't be slothful. This is what it means in the Greek. Don't be slothful. Be active. Doing your assigned task. um, Doing your assigned task. I'm not going to read that. We don't have time. Hmm. So I'm just going to jump from here to, well, so the primary difference between this and this is we do know what's going to happen, and when it's going to come, we don't know what's going to happen. So the primary difference is look for these things to give you sign to this. Don't look for things because we don't know when it's going to happen. Okay. Instead, remain faithful. That's the key to this part, and this is where we are. Right. This has already happened, obviously. If you don't understand that we're past 70 A.D., We have to have a different conversation after tonight's over. Okay? But we are here. And so the point of, I think, this application for us is all about the idea of us keeping watch, us staying engaged, us making sure that we are trying to remain faithful to what God has called us to do. And I think that there, even though this isn't all spoken directly to us, it was spoken to disciples, I do think there are things we can take from this um, that apply to us. The second difference I want to point out between this and this Um, It's something that I just feel, it doesn't freak me out, but it kind of, in a healthy way, helps me understand the authority of God and the sovereignty of God. And it's this, that in the Old Testament, when the prophets came and they spoke, and they were God's mouthpiece and God spoke through them, and they pronounced judgment on the people of God for being disobedient to God, then judgment came. And judgment came and actually... Israel was split to, this, to the north and the south, and um, the Assyrians captured half of them, captured some of them, and then the Babylonians captured the rest, and they went into captivity, and that was judgment, okay? And then Jesus comes, and he is referred, we, we do refer, see him as a prophet, not only a prophet, he's Lord, um, and they reject him, okay? And then judgment happens in 70 AD. But all these judgments, the goal I believe of these judgments is to show God's authority and also to he is he is merciful and compassionate and he gives people time to repent and to come to him. And the pri- another primary difference between this judgment and between this judgment is there's no more repentance after this one. Like this is the end. This is the end. There's no more And there's not time for repentance. Like, judgment's going to come. And we can be certain, not of when it's going to come, but that it will come. And that Christ will return. We can be certain of those things. That it's going to happen. Not when it's going to happen. And not for us to sit there and try to predict when it's going to happen. But just knowing that it is going to happen. Okay? And so I want us to look At five through eight, whenever he says, watch out that no one deceives you, and he starts talking about people are going to come claiming that I am he, okay? One thing I think we can take from that is make sure that you stay alert by not being deceived. Make sure that you're not deceived by false teachers. Make sure you're not deceived when people try to tell you, for me, it was like new millennium. The year 2000 is coming and it's the end of the world. And I remember thinking all the time, I'm being in line in Walmart with my mom, thinking, I'm just going to constantly think it's going to happen because it says that no one will know when it's going to happen. And if I think I know when it's going to happen, then it's not going to happen because <laughs> I was so afraid. I remember feeling that way. I was so afraid. Totally did that, right? I know. Okay. And so that's what I, I remember doing that. Don't be deceived. Okay. Don't be deceived. Okay, your faith should uphold you through through all that. The next part I thought was interesting is nine nine through eleven, he says, You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings and witness to them. And the gospel first and the gospel must first be preached, must above all else, more than anything else in this world, the gospel must be preached, right? Love our Jesus, right? Okay, so the gospel must be preached to the nations. When you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I think the next thing we can take with this is, how do we remain alert? By not falling away in persecution. So not falling away um, through deception. Not falling away through persecution. Brothers will betray brothers to death And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Guys, this is, we're talking about a very, God's going to come. Jesus is going to come. Okay? And anything that's going to oppose him, he's going to obliterate that. Like, he's not for that. He is a jealous God. He is a powerful God. He is an authoritative God. Okay, and so if you think that the gospel is not something that will divide families, like you're not thinking clearly because you're going to have to be either your allegiance is going to be with Christ or it's not. Like that's the option. That's the option. Okay, it's, it is divisive. Okay, it can be divisive. Um, and then I think you go through to 12 through 13. Oh, I read 12, 13. And then at the end, 30, 32 through 37, keep watch, remain faithful, stay active, Work. Trust in his promises and his spirit to work through you. I think that's what I would just end with and encourage you guys with. I did start praying this week whenever I was just studying this and feeling really overwhelmed by it. I started feeling very, very small. And part of that reason is because last week um, in our service, Drew preached on chapter 7 of Matthew. And he was asking, do you actually want to follow Jesus or not? It's a narrow road road. Or it's a wide road, and you're going to have to choose one. And I'm thinking about this, and then it's like I'm coming, and I'm and I'm very, I'm very convicted about this. And then I come to chapter 13, and it's all about like the end and judgment, and I'm just like, yes, I want to choose the narrow road, you know. But not because, not because God's going to come back and obliterate everything. Which, uh, kind of, some of it's because I know God's going to come back and obliterate everything, and I believe that He is who He is. But because He, He loves us. And He is working through us and in us. And He's drawing us to Himself. And I just think that's the most amazing thing in the whole world. That the God who created me loves me enough to die on a cross, to bring me to Him for His glory, for my benefit. You know, like that's amazing to me. And that I have the opportunity to speak that to people is just mind-blowing. Whether that means that families are divided apart, whether that means that... Um, persecution comes, or maybe it just means that I don't get some of the things I desire, right? That's the reality for me, I feel like, in my lifetime. Um, but that's an easy, to me, that's no cost compared to walking a narrow road because of what we have in the end and the reward that we have in the end. So I have been praying this week for the Lord to come. And I think that what I'd like you guys to do is I'm going to pray over you guys, and then I'm going to have Kayla come up and just lead a couple of songs, if you would, can do that. Okay, Um, and I'm going to pray and I want you guys just to be thinking about how one we do not have this passage all figured out and there might even be things Drew has said or I have said that are not true we don't know we think they're true we studied really hard we prayed a lot about it Um, but we are not perfect and there's a lot of people that are smarter than us that think a lot of different things about this passage Okay, so take that for what it is Um, I want you guys to be thinking about One, how huge and authoritative God is, okay, and how powerful he is, and that when he comes, like, nothing is going to be able to stand against him or stop him. I just want you guys to kind of be humbled in understanding that. Lord, thank you for all these students. Uh, Thank you for Drew, who studies so hard and who just desires to know more and more about you and the way that you just use him to, um, bring your words alive sometimes. And I just thank you for doing that and for speaking through him. Lord, I do pray that you would come soon. <laughs> Not because we are in turmoil here, uh, but because we just want to be with you. And so Lord, I just pray that you come. Um, um, And that you help us to be ready and to remain ready and to remain faithful and to continue to run until you get here, the race that you've marked out for us, Lord. Lord, help us to be obedient, um, to count the cost of what it means to follow you and to realize that the cost is always worth it every time. Lord, I pray that you continue to weed out of us things that we have not given to you and that you help us submit to you and be obedient to you in every area and that we understand that you are in charge that you are God that you are in control and that um, we can obey out of that reverent awe and sovereignty that you have. Lord, we love you so much. Amen.